Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I love that song. It's just straight out of Scripture. Oh, may the blessing of the Lord be upon you as you are here today, as you're tuning in today from wherever you may be watching. As we open our Bibles, we're going to Psalm 129 together. Psalm 129. Today, we are looking at a reality of life, and that is a song of sorrow. We're just not going to make it through this life without experiencing sorrow. Suffering is a reality of this life. And my friend, how we respond to suffering, it tells so much about us. It says so much about our spiritual condition, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I encounter suffering, The temptation for me can be to doubt God's love, to doubt God's presence, to doubt that God has the power to be able to handle the situation that I'm in, and perhaps even to doubt God's goodness. If God is good, the question is posed, then how can he let suffering happen? Psalm 129 Take suffering by the horns. It just squares up with suffering. It follows Psalm 128. Psalm 128 ends with, peace be upon Israel. Psalm 129 says, we're looking for peace in Israel. We don't see peace in Israel. We see suffering. In God's love and mercy, he dealt with his people the children of Israel. Patiently, he sent to them prophets. He revealed himself to them. He sent his word to them. He delivered them. And then he sent prophets to preach to them, to remind them, here is the way of the Lord. Walk in his way. If you don't walk in his way, judgment is coming. And they would reject the prophets. They would reject the word of God. They would reject God himself. And then the Lord would allow them to go into suffering, whether it be at the hand of the Philistines or the hand of the Amorites or the hand of enemy nations or Babylon or Assyria or Persia. And he would allow, but he would not forget them. He would not abandon his promise to them. And then he, when they would be in these positions of sorrow and despair, and they would remember the Lord. And their hearts would be turned toward the Lord. Their hearts would be softened toward the Lord. And they would remember this is what the Lord promised our fathers. And dear God, we have sinned like we looked at a couple of weeks ago when Daniel prayed and he asked for forgiveness and he, and he pleaded and he repented before the Lord. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. And then the Lord would send a deliverer. And the Lord would return them in fellowship And so often then they would forget God. And that cycle, that downward cycle would start all over again. Are we that far removed from the Israelites of old, of what we read in the Old Testament? I don't think so either. 
in the wisdom literature of Scripture, and especially in the book of Psalms, we see repeatedly the two types of people, the two ways. You, you see the, the righteous person and you see the wicked person. You see the wise and you see the foolish. You see the two ways, the way that leads to life, the way that leads to death. There's a reason. It's for every person that I'm looking at right here today and I can't see through the lens to where you may be watching. It's for us to evaluate, to ask the question, which path am I on? Which person am I? Do I know the Lord Jesus Christ or am I just trusting in myself and my own religious accomplishments to evaluate this question? Now, for us to rightly understand Psalm 129, we have to approach the scripture in this way. We first of all have to understand Psalm 129 to the original audience, to Israel. Then we can see how prophetically Psalm 129, we see it perfectly in Jesus, vividly foretold, fulfilled Jesus Messiah. And then only after we walk through those steps can we then move into, now how do I apply this to my life? How do I move forward in obedience because of Psalm 129 after understanding Israel, what this meant to them, what God intended for them, the original audience, the author, the message, the intent? How was this foretelling of Jesus? Now, how should I respond? How should we respond as the people of God practically? Psalm 129, you follow along there. And again, Psalm 128 May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 129.1, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. This is a song of sorrow. The Bible does not hide the reality of suffering. Do not think that only Christianity has to give an answer to the question, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Whatever your worldview is, what is your answer, and is it coherent? Does it hold up? Does it bear weight? Does it work in all situations? Why I believe the gospel is because you can take the gospel to any nation, any people group, and you can proclaim to them what is wrong in their city, in their country, in their nation, on their continent, on planet earth, and what God has done to make right what is wrong. I may not know their language, 
but I know the message that they need to hear. It's the good news. It's the gospel. Where have we been? In a snapshot, these Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 is where we started. The Lord is my deliverer. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my peace, my master, my salvation, my protector, my restorer, my provider. And again, I'm going to ask the question, is he? Just because you come to church, just because you were born into a Christian family, just because you have a Bible, that does not mean that you are in a right-saving relationship with God. Has there been a time in your life when you were stopped dead in your tracks, realized I'm on the way to hell? I deserve hell. I'm a sinner. And someone shared with you the good news that Jesus came, died, paid your fine, your penalty, and rose from the dead. The check cleared. And if you trust in him alone, you can be given life that never ends. When has that taken place in your life? If you say, I don't think that's ever happened, maybe today is the day that you would trust in the Lord Jesus. And then you can take these truths about the Lord and say, now it's personal. As we saw last Sunday, the Lord is my reward. He's mine. I can lose everything. I can lose my life and not be lost because I have God. And if I have God, what else do you need? I will have everything that he provides or withholds from me. And he's good. Today, a song of sorrow. The Lord is my defender. The Lord is my defender. Now, if the Lord is your defender, it doesn't mean no one will be against me. It means no one can win against you. And the Lord is your defender. The Lord is quick to say, I've got this. Wise, step back. I've got this. And you can put your name in there. And the Lord is your defender. Three truths to strengthen believers in times of suffering. Three truths. We're going to see this this morning. And as usual, the first truth usually takes us the most time to unpack, all right? It did in the first service. Generally, it's laying the foundation and putting the structure together. The people who come in and put the carpet and the drapes up, that's pretty easy after you've got this foundation set. That's pretty much how every sermon goes. Number one, the first truth that we want to see this morning, the wicked inflict pain on the righteous. This is nothing new. This is tried and true. Throughout human history. So we need to examine this. We need to evaluate what's going on here. What's the deal between the wicked and the righteous? And why is it the wicked inflict pain on the righteous? And the psalmist says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Now, understand this is a corporate psalm, a corporate song, but it's also personal. And it goes together with 1 Corinthians 12 that when one member of the body suffers, how much of the body suffers? The whole body destroys the idea of I can do whatever I want to do and I am just go here and I go there. If you're part of a flock, if you're part of a body, what you do, how you are going through life, what you're experiencing, blessings and burdens, 
it ripple affects the whole body, the whole family. I got my, my nose smacked pretty hard playing soccer by a guy this week. Listen, my toenails cared about my nose bleeding, okay? My whole body cared, like, protect the beak. I, I need to find Rip Hamilton's mask. If he's done using it, I need it now. That hurt. When one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers, So you hear what the psalmist is saying. He says, greatly have they afflicted me. Let Israel now say. There's a corporate reality and there's an individual. This is affecting someone really, personally. The truth is is the wicked hate the righteous. The ungodly are not named here. The psalmist does not list the names of the nations. It's kind of like the relative who was closer to Naomi in the book of Ruth, who was first man up to redeem Naomi. And at first, when Boaz finds him in the gate and says, hey, sit down, we got to talk. You're in line first to purchase Elimelech's widow and all that comes with that. Naomi. He says, okay, I'll do it. And he says, oh, but there's one more thing. Kind of like an infomercial. One more thing. You also, when you buy Naomi and all of Elimelech's, you need to also redeem Ruth the Moabitess. And the relative says, uh-oh, uh-uh. I don't want to lose my name. And the way the, the, it's written in Hebrew is, John Doe said, I don't want to lose my name. And we don't know his name. We know Boaz's name, and he's used by the Lord into the house of David. He was afraid he was going to lose his name. And it's highlighting something. Here it says they. They have afflicted. Who's they? It doesn't matter. He doesn't name them. They go nameless. It's highlighting what they have done against Israel, all of Israel's history. It's a corporate song. It's a personal song. You go all the way back to Israel's youth, infancy in Egypt, 400 years. And because of Joseph, God used a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to spare Egypt and all of the people. And all who came to Egypt were able to live and find bread. And then came Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, didn't know God, Yahweh, And he said, who are these people out in the land of Goshen? If they ever rise up against us, we're not going to survive. And then he enslaved them and he abused them. And then Moses is sent to Egypt. And when Moses comes, he says, the Lord has sent me. And the children of Israel say, yes, you're the man. I vote for Moses and Aaron. This is amazing. And then Moses goes in and Pharaoh hears what he has to say. And he says, I'm not doing that. What, you people have too much time on your hands. So then he calls in the taskmasters and he says, here's the deal. You're going to keep up all of your brick making and I'm not going to give you straw. And I'm not, you're going to have to go find it. How are we supposed to do this? And they begin to beat them so that those taskmasters are expected to keep all of the people and now they're They've been beaten. Their backs have been plowed. They come out of Pharaoh's presence. They see Moses and Aaron, and they're ripping off the Moses and Aaron bumper stickers now. No more. You. It was all going good till you came, and Moses would look at him like, I didn't want to come here. 
God sent me here. Don't blame me. Lord, what are you doing sending me to these people? From their infancy, they were abused. They were, they were afflicted. Well, they get out into the wilderness, and they're afflicted by their enemies in the wilderness. The enemy nations, Ammon, Moab, the Edomites, they get into the promised land. They're constantly afflicted by their enemies there. The Philistines, read the account. David was back and forth with the Philistines. Saul, back and forth with the Philistines all throughout their history. Read Psalm 135. You have an account there. You can just write that out on the side. In all of human history, let's go back to the first family, okay? So listen, there are people who say it's all about the environment. If you have a young person and they're brought up in a bad environment, then they're going to be bad. That's just what it is. It's the environment that made them bad. Trying to give an understanding of why people do bad things. Go to the first family, Adam and Eve. They sinned, kicked out of the garden. They have the two sons, Cain and Abel. And in that first family, what does Cain do? He doesn't obey the Lord. He doesn't obey the Lord from the heart. He doesn't bring the sacrifice like Abel does without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sins. And Abel brings the sacrifice in worship to the Lord. And the Lord receives Abel's sacrifice. And the Lord rejects Cain's sacrifice, the fruit of the land. Cain has an opportunity to say, you know what? Forgive me, Lord. I need to just obey you from the heart. Instead, he gets mad in his heart. He hates Abel in his heart. He hates his brother, waits for a day. They're out in the field and he slays his brother and puts his body in the ground and then the Lord shows up. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? My, my brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. And his blood cries out to me from the ground and you are cursed. That's the first family. What's going on there? One person wants to do things their way. One person wants to do things God's way. One is by grace, by faith, made right. The other is trying to come to God on his own terms. And that wicked person, as defined by Scripture, hates the righteous person. So you go to Christmases and Thanksgivings with family, and if you try to talk anything gospel, anything of the goodness of God, there are people in your family who will tell you, shut up. I don't want to hear that. Stop talking. Leave me alone. I want you to know this is nothing new. We're not the first to encounter this. Go to the first family and you see this. Human history bears this out. In Luke 16, Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. And again, what's the rich man's name? The rich guy. We don't know his name, but we know Lazarus' name. And what do we know about these individuals? That Lazarus, in faith, was declared righteous, not because of anything, not because he was poor. It's not a sin to be rich, and it's righteous to be poor. That's not what's going on. Lazarus trusted in the Lord. The rich man trusted in his riches, and it's easy to do. When you're a self-made man, and you have a good income, and you've got a good supply in the bank, and you've got a good retirement later, it's easy to trust in you. But the rich man died and was buried. And Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham in the presence of the Lord to paradise. And the rich man tortured. And Jesus is highlighting, what's his name? He was here. He was influential for a while and then he's gone. And even in 
the afterlife, he's still trying to command Lazarus. Father Abraham, tell him to get water and come to me and dip his water. He's still giving out orders. He's still like a, like a rich guy, bossing people around. Only problem is you're not in charge anymore and no one takes orders from you anymore and there's a great goal fixed and he can't come to you. You had your time. You received the blessing of the Lord and you never returned thanks to the Lord who gave it to you. This is nothing new. The wicked hate the righteous. David suffered persecution. He experienced betrayal from Saul, from trusted uh, military advisors, from his own family. Absalom stole the kingdom for a time. He understood. Psalm 54 is David crying out to the Lord. But Jesus also suffered. He suffered at the hands of sinners. And in John chapter 18, we see that he is on this trial before Pilate. And Pilate answers to Jesus in John 18, 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, here's the first report. I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Next chapter, John 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, the Jewish uh, people, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Number two, innocent, not guilty. You haven't brought any charges against him that have stuck. So Jesus came out, verse 5 says, wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for, time number three, I find no guilt in him. Innocent, innocent, innocent. What do we know when Scripture says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? There's an emphasis here, innocent, innocent, innocent. Pilate, the Gentile, looks in on the situation. What, why, are you, why are you bringing him to me? He's innocent. The innocent would suffer in the place of the guilty. That's me. That's you. That's Pilate. The Christian church has suffered for 2,000 years. In the book of Acts, you can see the details, enemies outside of the church, like the Jewish religious leaders, Acts 3, Acts 4, Saul of Tarsus, Acts 6, 7, and 8. Stephen is martyred. The false teachers come into the church. In Acts, we see Herod, he killed James, the brother of John. In Acts 12, he arrested Peter. He's waiting, he's going to behead him. And then an angel shows up and changes that whole narrative. And read Acts 12, because Herod was in charge, was the king, was giving orders, was saying, you live, you die. And then at the end of Acts 12, as he's there in Caesarea Philippi, and he's given this speech, and the people don't care what he's saying because they need his supply. He's the king, and they're, on, they're, they're not on good diplomatic terms. And so with, their, with the response, they're shouting out, it's like the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. And he's just soaking it in in his pride. And then he's struck by an angel with worms 
and he dies. How quickly it changed. I'm the king. I say who lives. I say, but there's a king above, over, and beyond you. It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when that time came, Herod was done. And there wasn't one thing he was going to do to prolong his life one more second. In the book of Acts, we see the enemies attack from inside of the church, like Ananias and Sapphira who lied, Acts chapter 5. We see racial tension in Acts chapter 6. There's complaining. The Hellenistic widows are not having their needs, needs met. Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the elders of Ephesus, watch out. There will be those come in from outside. And he says, you also need to pay attention. There will be people who are in the number with you, who are singing the songs with you or doing the Bible studies with you. And all of a sudden, you look in that peripheral vision and you see their weapon is pointed at you. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't, don't think, well, how did this happen? We're told this is gonna happen. Just be ready and trust the Lord in all of it. It's recorded in countless biographies like Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you haven't read that, it's an account of persecution to the church down through the centuries. People who gave their lives holding to the truth of the gospel. Robert Nisbet, he gives a summary of Psalm 129 in a sermon, and I find it helpful. He says that affliction is for the safety of the church. It's actually for the purification, the good of the church. And he says, here's why. Affliction, that in affliction, we seek God. Many, when they enter into affliction, they find God. That's where God is known. That we ourselves are known. That our sin becomes known to us in affliction. And also, that the world is known to us as God's children. There's a purpose in suffering. There's a purpose in affliction. And I want us to be ready and prepared and instructed and equipped so that when affliction comes, when sorrow comes, we're not completely caught off guard and just blown like a tumbleweed in the West Texas desert. What does 1 John 2 say, verse 15? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires or the lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now listen, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides. How long? We're right back to the two ways. Are you on a way, the way of life that lasts forever, blessing forever, or on the way of death? So the wicked, they hate the righteous. And then they step into action. The wicked harm the righteous. The psalmist says that Israel has been afflicted. Just think about how Pharaoh treated the Israelites. That they were, and he uses this graphic, it's agriculture, okay? It's like a farmer plowing a field. 
Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The whole length of the field, the whole length of Israel's back. Jeremy Taylor says it this way, God fails not to sow blessings in the furrows which the plowers plow upon the back of the church. Suffering is not pointless. That when the church is persecuted, when, as it were, it's, it's graphic, when the back is opened in suffering, that God is sowing the seed of blessing. You think about what happened to Israel. But that's a little distant and removed from, a, from us, isn't it? What about our own nation's history? What's happened here in the United States of America not that long ago? There's three illustrations. It comes up in a newspaper clipping that's on the Library of Congress. I found this on history.com. And this man is a slave. His name was Peter. He escaped from the plantation where he was held and where he was beaten. He showed up at a Union Army outpost, Baton Rouge. He turned himself in, he gave, and he signed up to serve in the Army. So the three pictures that you see is him coming in wearing regular clothes. Then you see that they took pictures of his back. His back has been plowed with long furrows. And then you see him in a Union Army uniform. He's saying, I'll put my life into the cause of defending and doing what is right to overturn slavery. Listen to what uh, Aaron Blakemore has the article there on history.com. says this, for white Southerners and enslaved black people, the sight of a back like Peter's was chillingly commonplace. I saw it all the time. Peter's, for, for white northerners though, Peter's scourged body made slavery's brutality impossible to deny. Blakemore says it remains one of the era's best known and most appalling images. Here's what happened. When white North America saw the picture of Peter's back, they couldn't ignore it anymore. It became their problem. It became visceral. It became, I can't turn my blind eye anymore. We have to do something because I've seen that man's back. Now just imagine, just imagine if that was your grandfather or your father. And you could say to them, Hey, hey, Grandpa, can I, can I see your back again? And they took their shirt off and showed you their back. And how they had been set free and you were not being brought up in the environment that your back would look like that. Because people laid down their lives. 
Psalm 129 is graphic that this is what happened to Israel. But remember, these are songs for the road. These are songs that are familiar to the Israelites that they would sing every time they would gather for a festival three times a year. And then there would come the day when Jesus, Messiah, and they would shout out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it, Pilate would wash his hands and say, He's not, his blood is not on my hands. You do what you have to do. And his back would be plowed. And suddenly Psalm 129 cannot be dismissed. It was so visible and so real and so tangible that the Israelites would be looking at Jesus of Nazareth and his back being whipped and brutally beaten and asking the question, why? They could never sing Psalm 129 again and not have the back of the Lord Jesus right there in their memory. Now, I don't have a picture of Jesus' body. But understand, Revelation tells us that the day will come when we will be gathered around the throne, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, and we will say, worthy is the lamb who is slain, and understand that he still bears the marks of his body. The marks of crucifixion in his body. Those prints of the nails, the scar of the spear, the marks on his back where he, the sinless son of God, was plowed by the plowers, not for his sin. My sin. Your sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord what he endured for you and for me. Romans 8, 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Think about this. The father gave up his son, the son laid down his life. He gave up his back for beating so that our sin could be atoned for. If the father gave up his son, the righteous son, the second person of the Trinity, if the son laid down his life so that our sin for, could be forgiven, what is he gonna withhold from us that he views as good? He's already given the best gift there is. As our Father in heaven, we can trust him. And this is where there's a turn that, in, that it says right here in Psalm 129, the wicked hold no ultimate power over the righteous. The psalmist says, yet they have not prevailed against me. I was beaten, I was down, I was down for the count, but I wasn't out. They didn't win. The wicked hold no ultimate power over the righteous. Not long ago, we went through Psalm 37. The wicked are here and then they're gone. They have no power beyond what the Lord will allow. The Lord will continue to sustain Israel. The Lord will complete every promise he made in his word to this nation through whom he has blessed the entire world. Just think about how in the world is Israel still around today? 
How did they make it out of Egypt? The Lord. How did they make it through the Red Sea and not die by the army of the Egyptians at the shore of the Red Sea? The Lord. How did they make it through the wilderness? Can you imagine a 40-year journey in the wilderness? It's challenging to go 40 minutes with a carload of kids. When are we going to stop? I'm hungry. I need to pee. All the things that can happen. Are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? 40 years. How did they make it out alive? The Lord. How did they make it through the Jordan into the promised land, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How did they make it through Joshua's leadership, through Jericho, all these places against the Philistines? How did they make it? The Lord. Had the Lord not been on our side? How did they survive Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome? How? This little, have you seen the size of that property on the globe and how much violence happens over Israel? It looks like that. How are they still around had the Lord not been on our side? The Lord has sustained them. No enemy has prevailed over them so that in May, on May 14, 1948, after centuries, they're declared to be a nation again. And suddenly the world has to say, maybe there is something in this book that we better pay attention to. That the Lord will keep every one of his promises to his people. The Lord will sustain his people. And the wicked will only be allowed to go so far. This is what Paul has in mind, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. Okay, no shocker. Christianity 101 is not the yellow brick road to heaven. No problems, no pain, no suffering. It is filled with suffering. Look what they did to Jesus. But you need the red carpet for you. I need the red carpet for me. Doesn't sound right, does it? We are afflicted in every way, Paul says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that in the life of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Everywhere we go as believers, we're remembering Jesus' back was plowed for me. So my life is not to die for him. My life is to be lived for him. And if you belong to him, so is yours. That people will look at you and look at me and say, what's different about you? And I can simply say, it's Jesus. And you can simply say, it's just Jesus. It's Jesus. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, see how godly men are roughly plowed by their adversaries? And yet a harvest comes of it, which endures and produces blessing. While the ungodly, here's the two ways, okay? Though they flourish for a while and enjoy complete immunity, dwelling as they think quite above the reach of harm, are found in short time to have gone their way and to have left no trace behind. First truth, the wicked inflict pain on the righteous. Just a reality. The second truth, the Lord will preserve the righteous. The Lord will preserve the righteous. Our hope for deliverance is in the Lord. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So listen, the Lord is righteous, and the Lord loves the righteous. He loves 
his people. He is perfect in all of his ways. So the reason that we care about justice is because we're made in the image of God. The reason why from childhood we scream out, that's not fair when something's not right. Where does that come from? And who decides what's fair and not fair? And remember, I've said it before, when it comes to what we want from the Lord, we don't want what's fair. If I get what's fair, I get hell because that's what I deserve. Ah, but his justice, his wrath was poured out on Christ so that my sin atoned for in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I can be declared righteous not by anything that I've done, not by anything that you have done, but by what he has done. We can plead the blood that we are in Christ, therefore we are free. You don't have to be afraid. The Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous. Without God, my friend, we have no basis that's coherent for justice. So right now, the cries are going out for justice, justice, justice. Who's setting the standard for justice? If you've abandoned the Lord, what are, you, what are you basing justice upon? When everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, you have our nightly news. Chaos, unrest, shootings, murders, violence, brokenness death. God always acts upon the basis of his justice and out of his abundant love. Listen, it isn't is God just or is he loving? God is just. God is holy. God is true. God is just. It's his character. So everything that he does in our lives, it comes with all of his character bearing upon it. Does that mean that I can explain to you loved ones what you have been through or even understand things that I've been through? I cannot. But I can point you and you can point me to the one who knows us, loves us, and is good and say, trust him. Trust him. The Lord is righteous and he loves the righteous. The Lord reigns and he sets limits on the wicked. And the psalmist says he has cut their cords. It's agricultural imagery here. It's oxen that are hooked up to the yoke and they can't get out on their own. You ever heard, you know, a couple cows like, hey, we're going to break out of here. All right, you take the right. I got the left. We're going to do this. I mean, has it happened at all? Okay, maybe it has. They're making a plant. They have to be released. They have to be cut loose. And the psalmist is saying, when the Lord said, that's it. When our time in Egypt was done, Egypt couldn't prolong the time. We were cut loose and let go. When our time, Assyria, Babylon, and released by Cyrus from Persia, when the Lord said, that's it, cut their bonds, let them go, they were free to go. There was no argument. There was no contest. Hey, do you know how death is pictured in the New Testament for the believer? Sleep. That we're loosed. We're cut loose. We're let go to be with God one day. That, that's no loss for the child of God. It's a loss for those who are living because they are taken from our fellowship and our presence and even their God knows, loves, cares, and he's good and we can trust him. Listen, when Nebi 
you know, King Nebi raised up that, that golden statue, bow down. It was three Hebrews. They said, no. Seven times hotter. I'm going to play the music one more time, your song for, no, you don't need to. Our God is able. Our God will deliver. Uh, and if he doesn't, we're going to still serve him because we we're not going to serve you. We're going to serve him. And that king's fire couldn't go beyond the cords. All right, cords are yours. Burn those. Didn't touch their clothes. Didn't touch their hair. Didn't even put smell on them. And listen, I've been around some fires, and I walk inside, and Ginger's like, you've been burning a little fire out back again, haven't you, right? Smells. They inspected them, no smell of fire. Why? Because the Lord said, you can't go beyond this right here. I will protect them. And when the Lord is your defender, you and I have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. Even to the point when they took Paul's head, no fear. You leave me here, this head's gonna be talking about Jesus. You cut this head off, I'll be with Jesus. Make up your mind, time's wasting. What do you do with that guy? Well, we're still... We have the word that came through him by the Spirit even today. Oh, so listen, here's it. The wicked inflict pain on the righteous. The Lord will protect the righteous. And lastly, the Lord will punish the wicked. And we see this in verses five through eight. Here the psalmist prays an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer of judgment. It's a prayer of cursing. You say, is this... This is in the Bible? Are we, are we supposed to pray like this? That's why I said we have to understand it in Israel's context, in Jesus fulfilled, and then make sense of it for us, okay? Under the Lord will punish the wicked, we see we need to pray against God's enemies. And the psalmist identifies who are God's enemies. May all who hate Zion. The enemies of God, they hate the city of God, they hate the people of God, they ultimately hate God himself and they can't get to him, so they take on his people. They took on his prophets, the priests, any messenger of God. James chapter four, verse four says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're right back to their, their two sides. May all who hate Zion, he's praying against the enemies of God, but he prays that God's enemies will not prosper in evil. He's praying for something. He's praying against the enemies of God. Lord, here's my request for you. This is what I'm asking for you to do. May they be put to shame, turn backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops. No blessing upon them. That, that's what he's saying. Let them be put to shame. Turn backward. All their plans, mess them up. Let them be like the grass on a housetop, okay? They didn't have grass growing. It was just a, a random weed like you have weeds in a driveway crack, and you got to get rid of it. And you pull it out, and you come out the next day, and you're like, what? I know I got rid of that yesterday, and it's back. And, and I don't, if you don't take care of that, my grass in the crack of the driveway grows better than the grass in my yard. I don't know how that happens. So on the rooftop, Here's the deal. He's saying, I just want them to be worthless, that you don't get your mower out, you don't get a trimmer out. You go up and you pull it up and you throw it in the fire. It's worthless. He's saying, may the enemies of the Lord, I'm praying against them, all their plans, turn them back. Let them not be productive. Let them be worthless in their plotting against God and his people and the kingdom of God. 
Let them not be blessed by the Lord. Okay, here, this is where, uh, we're gonna see this, where even, even in Boaz and a blessing that would come, he's saying, no, no blessing. Don't give blessing upon these people. Just because somebody says, I'm a religious person, just because somebody says, oh, I'm a Christian, that doesn't mean we bless them. If they're living in unrepentant sin, we don't bless them. We pray that God would deal with them, that they would be convicted in their sin and turn back to the Lord. Pray that God's enemies will repent and enter into blessing. So when he says this, Lord bless you, at the end of the psalm, nor do those who pass by. Don't let anybody pass by the enemy of God in his church saying, hey, Lord bless you. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name. What does this sound like? This sounds like Boaz's field. Ruth 2, verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Don't say that in the fields around where the young men are taking advantage of the young women. No, 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 don't say the Lord bless you. But in Boaz's field, remember when he's like, um, excuse me, who is that woman? Oh, that's Ruth. She came back with Naomi from Moab. She's a Moabitess. He's like, uh-huh. Invite her to lunch. And he said to Ruth, remember what he said? Hey, don't go to anybody else's field. My guys will treat you with honor because this is my field. And in my field, we want the blessing of the Lord and we bless the Lord and we bless one another. Stay in my field. And here's a blessing for you when you go home. And remember, Naomi is having a whatever day she's having, and here comes Ruth. And, in, and she, Ruth is just overflowing with a harvest. And she's like, oh, my child, who took favor on you today? The Lord. And she's like, I was over in Boaz's field. Oh, this is, and her wheels just get going, and she's going to work. Matchmaker, he's our relative. Oh, he's going to be on this. And he was. And he won the girl. The Lord bless you. Listen. This is what it is to be blessed of the Lord. It comes out in our behavior and how we treat others. So we pray that the enemies of the Lord will repent and enter into blessing. Because here's the reality. I was an enemy of God. You were once an enemy of God. And something happened in us. Saul of Tarsus was an enemy of God, and he writes in Romans 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What is that language of? We were enemies, and now we're friends. How'd that happen? Jesus died was buried and rose again and he takes enemies and he makes them friends. Jesus, he taught in Matthew chapter five. Look at verse 44. How do we view enemies? Spray paint their car, you know? No. This is what Jesus says, Matthew five forty-four. but I say to you, um, can, can you see that? Love your friends. Is that what he says? Hmm. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That God provides a livelihood for those who do not know him, do not love him, do not worship him. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, Peter, slow learner, all right? Any else, anybody else slow learners? Like Peter, Peter, he's our man, okay? Peter can do it, maybe we have a chance. First Peter 3, listen to what he writes as an older man, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How we do on being gentle, showing gentleness and respect on our Facebook posts, okay? When we're talking to others, Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if, you, if, that, you sh- if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, that the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the deal. There's no shame in suffering for righteousness. There's no honor in suffering for doing what is wrong, what is wicked, what is evil. So may as a church, we live to tell others about Jesus that other sinners would understand their condition and their coming judgment that is headed their way. They would hear what God has done for them in Christ and they would see the goodness of the Lord and they would trust in him alone for salvation through the hope of the gospel. This is the good news. What are our three truths? Here it is. The wicked, they'll inflict pain on the righteous. They always have. They will for a time. The Lord will preserve the righteous and the Lord will punish the wicked. You will not escape punishment. Either your sins are punished by you one day in hell or punished by Jesus on the cross, but our sins must be atoned for. So here's our questions. When we suffer, when I suffer, when you suffer, I can be easily tempted to what? Think about that. When we suffer, what what can we be tempted How can we be tempted? The second question is this. What does God's sovereignty have to do with my suffering? What does God's sovereignty have to do with my suffering? I want you to think through that, work through that. And the last question is this. In light of Psalm 129, how should I treat my enemies? How should I treat the enemies of God? In light of Psalm 129, how do I pray for them, against them, about them? How do we pray? Let's stand together. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to sing the hymn, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for Psalm 129. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ that is available to all who are listening today. Lord, you have at all times demonstrated great care for your church and love for your poor servants. 
So Lord, we need your help. We need your favor and we need your grace so that we may overthrow all the enterprises of our enemies, that your enemies, Lord, would be confounded and turned back in shame, so that we may, Lord, in all safety and quietness, praise and glorify your holy name all the days of our life through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.